So Money episode 1220, Narissa Holder Hall, founder of Mirror Mirror Books. You're listening to So Money with award winning money guru Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30 minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. The series of books I thought could do two important things. First, help parents prepare their kids for life's big moments. And second, allow kids to see themselves reflected in the stories that shape their childhood. Welcome back to So Money, everybody. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Our conversation about kids and money continues today in conversation with Narissa Holder Hall. She's the founder of Mirror Mirror Books, a direct-to-consumer publishing company that creates picture books that help little kids handle life's big moments. Their first book is called The Day I Beat the Germs, which tackles the COVID-19 pandemic. What's also cool is that Mirror Mirror's books come in 14 versions so that the child in the book can look a little bit like the child in your life. Narissa is also an award-winning producer of games, television, podcasts, and social networks for kids. She's got almost two decades of experience in kids' media, including with Nickelodeon, PBS, and Callaway Digital Arts. She has a degree in English from Wellesley and a master's in communication and education from Columbia University's Teachers College. She was born and raised in New York and founded Mirror Mirror Books with her husband. Together, they raised their five-year-old twins, and they've recently moved to Jamaica in the pandemic. We're going to talk about that as well as her advice for parents on how to talk to your kids about this complex time in our lives and her personal experience with how money and resources can buy you opportunities and options when life gets tough. Here's Narissa Holder Hall. Narissa Holder Hall, welcome to So Money. Thank you so much for having me, Farnoosh. I look forward to learning about your company, Mirror Mirror Books, and the new book, The Day I Beat the Germs. This is a story for parents to share with their children on explaining the pandemic. And we're talking preschoolers, young kids. I have I have one myself, and I know you have twins, young twins yourself, so this is very personal. I think this is so important uh, because we know that when we were younger, if anything traumatic happened... It impacted us as adult people, right? It's I ask it on the show all the time. Name an experience from childhood that has lingered. And for many children, the pandemic is going to be, for some children, the first sort of memory. And it can be a scary time depending on how we, depending on the narrative. So maybe that will give us an opportunity to talk about your book, The Day I Beat the Germs, and how this can help parents help their children. That's right. I mean, when we were first quarantining in Brooklyn, I was searching for a way to talk about the pandemic in terms that were developmentally appropriate and in a way that my kids could understand and that I could be honest and truthful without scaring them. And so um, I came up with the idea for my book, The Day I Beat the Germs, um, last spring. And I had been playing with this idea for a series of books for a little while before then. The series of books I thought could do two important things. First, help parents prepare their kids for life's big moments. And second, 
allow kids to see themselves reflected in the stories that shape their childhood. And as you said, Farnoosh, like narrative is so important and it goes into how we perceive the world and how we perceive ourselves. So how did you explain it to your children and how is the book, how is it characterizing the pandemic for families? So um, when we first heard about COVID-19, I searched my mind. We were in Brooklyn. Things had changed very abruptly. One minute, my kids were in a French playgroup in our neighborhood. The next minute, we were all at home together. And I wanted to use a reference point that they already had, which was we knew about germs because we learned how to wash our hands very early. And so that was my entry point, something that my kids already knew and were familiar with and were not afraid of and felt empowered around. And so I immediately just locked onto the concept of COVID-19 is about new germs, that these are new germs that have entered the world and that we need We have ways to protect ourselves against these new germs. And so one day my son came to me after talking about it a couple of times and said, Mama, I have an idea. I'm going to build a giant vacuum and lower it all the way down to the sidewalk and suck up all those new germs. And then we can go back to school and everything can go back to normal. And I thought, oh, he's trying to problem solve around this. Um, And I thought that is... A book that is a story. And so I built on that moment of imagination with my son. And we came up with a couple of other like larger than life, fantastical pretend ideas about what we could do with the germs. And so that's actually what the book is. It's really a, a way, it's a, it's a conversation starter first and foremost. And it's a way to help kids use their imaginations to make something that can be scary um, you know, bring it down to their size and make it understandable. And so it starts off, it's written in the first person and it comes in 14 different versions. So the child in the book can look a bit like the child in your life. And so the child in the book starts off with these big ideas to fix the problem of not being able to go, go to their friend's house anymore. And one of the ideas is around a giant vacuum, which came straight from my son. And then maybe one of one of the other ideas is using a hairdryer to blow all the germs away. And um, there's another idea involving space. And um, and then the parent comes in and says, you know what? There's a moment of like, you've had the power all along. We know that very well from other literature of like, all you need to do, my dear, is wash your hands, wear your mask and keep your distance. And we leave the child at the end of the story feeling empowered to control what they can control, which is their own hands, keeping their mask on and uh, watching their distance when they do find time to play with friends. So important. And Emily Bine, who's a child development expert, Dr. Emily Bine, she called the book especially relevant now. It can be applied to life beyond the current pandemic. It empowers children to take control of protecting themselves while not being scared. You have built an entire business around educating kids. Does that have a root in your own childhood? Do you have a story to share of your own of sort of what got you to this particular place in your career? Well, um, I like to say Mirror Mirror Books is a full circle moment for me. I loved books as a little girl and I was an English major in undergrad and I always knew I'd do something 
with books. I think my first job, actually, I'm thinking of this now, was in the Special Collections Library at Wellesley. And, um, and then, you know, I started out teaching and knew that I loved creating light bulb moments for kids. And I really wanted to find a way to scale up that, like, expertise. And so I moved into children's media, um, mostly in television, and then also in gaming and mobile apps. Um, and now producing podcasts for kids. I, I'm trying to find, do you have any recommendations for good podcasts for kids, any of your own, probably that I should be subscribing to? Well, I am producing podcasts for a wonderful new startup called Pinna um, that creates original narrative shows and game shows and lots of other fun interactive content for kids ages three to 12. So if you hop on over to Pinna, um, I'm sure you'll find some great stuff for you and your kids to enjoy. Pinna with a P? P-I-N-N-A. Okay, we'll check that out. What is it about kids that you find most fascinating or most significant? This is, we're talking about kids. This is where we learn all the, all the things when we're young. And so it's incredibly important developmentally to be exposed to the right sort of things. And I wonder what drew you to this. I mean, you talked about it a little bit, but what is it about kids specifically that really inspires you? Well, I, I, I think about my role in the world as someone who creates culture for kids. I, a lot of kids media producers um, maybe wouldn't characterize it that way, but I really see it as an opportunity to sort of help shape the next generation. And that even when I'm making something that's perceived as being like just fun or light or a cartoon or something, there are intentional choices that all producers and writers and everyone who goes into making kids media make every day when we're making content for kids. And those choices come through in the kinds of messaging, even if it's not overtly educational. And so just like with adults, media really matters. Um, And I would say for the most vulnerable and most innocent and the newest citizens among us, there's a wonderful opportunity to impart what we can on the next generation. This idea of legacy is really important to you. I was reading an interview that you gave on Thrive Global talking about wanting to leave a cultural and financial legacy for your kids. I think that resonates a lot with myself and my listeners, um, you yourself born from Guyanese immigrant parents. And I think like a lot of immigrant children, children of immigrants, there is this feeling like I got to carry the torch. Talk about that a little bit and your experience with that and how that has informed your, your role as a mother and also as an entrepreneur. You went straight to my heart, Farnoosh. Um, as so many first-generation Americans can relate to, sometimes I feel like I'm just trying to make up for not being a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think my parents are, they've, they've moved on, they've gotten over it. Um, but there is a real feeling of responsibility to make good on the sacrifices of my parents and their parents before them. Um, and I'm good with that. Like I... It, it's part of what drives me to take risks. It's part of what drives me to make sure I'm, I'm adding something beneficial um, in my industry, in my life's work. Um, 
I come from a line of entrepreneurs. My maternal grandfather had, I think, the biggest department store in Georgetown, Guyana. And uh, it was called House of Marshall. And I learned only recently that he designed some of the shoes and hats that were carried in his store. And so I knew, I grew up hearing, you know, I want to call them tall tales, but I think they were probably true. Hearing tales of this store and his giant car and how he drove it slowly so everybody could get a glimpse of him as he just went down the streets of Georgetown, Guyana. And, um, but I, I just learned that he was creative as well, which, you know, really resonates for obvious reasons. Um, and then his daughter, my mother, um, had owned and operated a daycare for 17 years, um, working with children and, and seeing her, I remember the first time she created a logo for her business and that had a big influence on me. And it made me believe that if there was a need in the community, or if you saw something missing that you could just like make it yourself. And that, that is part of what gives me the gumption to continue to create, um, create new things, create new products, create new businesses. You talk about risk and clearly as an entrepreneur, there are risks to be taken, but you also, I understand, moved your family to Jamaica in the pandemic. That may for some seem really risky. What drove you to do that? So last spring, we were slated to leave Brooklyn. Um, We had already planned to put our kids in pre-K in Connecticut. And then I think one of the last things I did before New York shut down was go out to look at a house. And then when it was clear, things were changed. And I was working from home. My husband was working from home. We were very lucky that, you know, that's how things ended up working out for us we realized pre-K maybe wasn't going to be what we thought in, in this, in this, in the fall. And so we just thought like, this is a weird moment. We could either be afraid and sort of contract, or we could look for like, what's the silver lining here. We've been very lucky that we weren't directly impacted by COVID-19 in terms of getting ill. And um, we thought like, what if we released our academic anxiety about our, our four-year-olds And we thought bigger. We said, like, what do we want for them in life? What do we want them to learn if they're not going to learn the typical preschool things? And we said we wanted them to be connected to their Caribbean heritage. And we wanted them to learn how to swim. And so one thing just led to another. I talked to a friend who was renting a farm on the West Coast. That's what she decided to do during the pandemic. I got off the phone and I said to my husband, Dirk, what's our farm? And he was like, not a farm, first of all. (laughs) I'm with your husband. I don't understand it. Especially city people who bought farms. I'm like, do you know that you have to tend to the land? Exactly. Um, But he said, like, I think our farm is a beach. And so things sort of triangulated. We continued working. We're very lucky that Dirk has a couple of wonderful first cousins here in Kingston So they sort of paved the way for us um, and we made our way. We packed up our apartment in like six weeks and moved to Jamaica indefinitely. Indefinitely, really. So this wasn't like a let's see how this works out, pandemic over, we'll go back to Brooklyn. Are you thinking, where are you at now? Are you thinking you're going to come back or you're staying? Well, I don't have any announcements if any of my friends and family are listening. (laughs) We're still here. Nobody listens to this show, I promise. (laughs) 
um, we're still in the deciding place of when and where to go next. And so for now, we're in Jamaica. My kids are doing um, a remote curriculum with the school we had originally registered with in Connecticut. And we hired a wonderful Jamaican teacher to come to our house every day. And so they seem pretty well adjusted. And we're very, we're very lucky that we had the sort of the means and the agency to make that kind of huge pivot um, and sort of land on our feet. I love that story. And really to dissect that, it's a case study worth learning from um, and in how to make lead the least obvious of decisions, right? This wasn't something that was first or second on your to-do list. It, I feel like there's something to be said about when you keep your options open, when you begin to look through life through this lens of, okay, let's start over. And what would that look like, right? Where... The pandemic, I think, for those who had, to your point, you know, the resources and the ability to think like that. I mean, that's what wealth really, one of the reasons I always, I'm always advocating for financial independence is because this is where, when when life gets at its toughest, sometimes you then are offered this clarity and this freedom to sort of not do what is expected of you, but yet still feel like you are being safe and you're moving forward and your resources can really provide you with that. But it's also a mindset. Like you and your husband had this mindset that is anyone can have this mindset. This is not exclusive to the rich or the, or the resourceful. It is simply let's think outside the box. And you did it. You did a calculus. You had a, a, you had a support system, you know, and that's, that's how I like to think too. It's like, all right, how can I be crazy, but also not crazy? You know, like I'm going to do this crazy idea thing over here, but how can I ground it and land safely? That's right. I mean, we could have gone, I guess, to other Caribbean islands, but we chose the one where we had family, you know, you could come and scout a house and FaceTime us and we would feel comfortable making a commitment. Um, knowing they were on the ground. Um, you know, I heard this saying before around like the difference between making good choices and like having good choices or having good options to make. And I think having resources is what affords you good options. Like it's so much easier to land on your feet if you've got a little something saved up. Um, and like you said, having a mindset of, I guess, risk tolerance, but also trusting that you'll be able to figure it out. That Dirk and I had been in enough situations before this where we felt like we'd been backed against the wall and that we figured out a way through. And so we knew, like, even if things weren't perfect, once we landed, we believed in our ability to sort it and figure it out. Um, And and that's available. That's available to anyone. That could be cultivated. You know, you could start small. My friend always says you got to um, find something in life that you suck at and just keep doing that because no no better way to build your problem solving, your humility, you know, all of those important emotionally intelligent life skills 
to then apply to then the really important stuff in life where the stakes are higher. So finding like a low stakes way to challenge yourself. Uh, that's what I'm getting out of this conversation too. That's re- being reinforced as well. I'm going to have to go back to some improv or something after this pandemic because I need to get scared again. I think it's good. You are braver than I would ever be. I mean, stand up. Oh, no. no. Nothing like saying a really weird joke that doesn't land uh, and having to recover in front of a hundred people that you don't know. Um, it's, right. it's, uh, it's life-changing, but, but back to you, your children helped you write the book in some ways. And they mean, obviously the inspiration, the day I beat germs, which by the way, has 14 characters. So I, I love that. You can kind of create this book and really dedicate it to your kid visually as well. But what do they think of the book? Oh my goodness. I think my kids, if they could, they'd be global ambassadors for the book because for them, it feels like a toolkit almost for this moment in their lives. Like we meet a new child and they want to give a book, give away a book. They're like, do they know about this germ book? Because I think it would really help them. Um, And so they, they love the story, but I think the unexpected result has been they see it as our way of helping other kids like make sense of this moment, which I, you know, was unexpected. You said you had been backed up against a wall a couple times, at least in your life. Is Was there a time financially or professionally that was, was particularly um, challenging and that you, and how you navigated through that? We'd love to hear that on this show. We love to talk about failure or struggle but how we overcome. I mean, that's, that's it, right? That's, that's the that's silver lining. That's how we learn, right? Let's see. I think our biggest financial struggle was when we realized we'd be going through IVF to have our children. And um, IVF is very expensive. And our health insurance was not covering. I don't think it covered any of our IVF process. And so making that kind of Taking that financial leap to sign up for the first round of treatments was really scary. Um, Again, grateful that we were even able to have that conversation and had the resources to then dedicate to moving on and after five cycles, having our children. Um, But it was a major financial, emotional, spiritual, physical commitment. Um, and for a good part of that time, I couldn't work. And so we also lost my income. And so, um, it was a very, very tough time in our relationship. And we learned though, that when hardship lands at our doorstep, we happen to like, we happen to run together. Like we run towards each other, not apart. And that's not something you could learn unless you go through it. And so, Um, While I wouldn't wish it on anyone, um, you know, I have my two beautiful children and I'm very grateful to have made it through to the other end. And uh, I think my marriage is stronger for it. Sounds like it. I mean, that is a lot of people's crossroads is uh, for those people who for those couples that want children who are considering IVF. That is so expensive. What's the calculus? I have a friend, for example, who's a a single woman who wants to is going through the egg 
the freezing of the egg process. But now she's at the phase where she would like to use the eggs. And that's another expense. And and the retrieval and the it's so much money. And she's considering taking out loans for this and on top of the first set of loans that she took out for the freezing process. And I, as a friend and as a financial strategist, I find very a lot of conflict in the advice that I want to give. On the one hand, I want to tell her to do whatever she can, because I know this will lead to so much happiness for her. But on the other hand, what is that happiness if you have over on the other end of it, loads of debt? How is that good, friendly advice, you know, to say, sure, take on another $50,000 worth of debt. So I don't know how to give advice in this area. Do you have any thoughts on that? What can I tell my friend? I would never want to wade into trying to give someone advice about this. It's so individual. It's so specific to your financial situation and what your plans are for your family. Um, We personally made the choice to postpone buying a home um, and instead used a lot of that cash. I like to say, like, I think we could have bought several homes um, by the time we were through with the medical process. Um, but that felt right for us. Uh, we happened to also live in New York city at the time where, you know, there were lots of amazing rental opportunities and where a lot of people rent. And so it maybe didn't feel as like as much of a sacrifice because it was just like postponing something as opposed to giving something up. And you took time off work, which on the one hand is is make would make things harder perhaps, but also gave you the time to uh, afford that time to dedicate to this endeavor. When you had to go back into the workforce as, I don't know, at this point as an entrepreneur or in corporate, how was that transition? I felt very lucky. So I think on the other end of the whole journey, I looked back and thought, oh my goodness, all the money I could have made. But in the moment when I decided to step away from working full time, I just felt grateful that I could because my doctor turned to me at one point and said like, Marissa, you need to cut back and you need to um, find a way to relieve your stress and focus on this. And so I was just glad because if someone turns to you and says like, quit your job, most people can't do that. Um, And so I think I was just grateful that I was in a position to make that happen and then on the other end, uh, you know, as many women experience, motherhood is its own rite of passage. Like, right, Mary Mary books are all about like childhood milestones and big life moments through the eyes of a child. But like adults have big life moments too. And matrescence is a real thing. Like becoming a mother, growing into being a mother is a real thing. And um, having twins is its own special adventure. And so I actually chose to stay home for another two years after almost three years after having my children. Um, And then I was so eager and excited to come back. I was very lucky that I I received an RFP for a project pitching um, PBS on a, a new science television show. And so in some ways, I was coaxed back into the industry, which, I mean, felt amazing because, you know, if you're out for 
several years as I was, you're just worried, like, am I relevant? Do people remember I exist? And so to get that email, I I think I still remember where I was when I read it. Like, oh, you want to hear my ideas? Awesome. No problem. But it's what I love most about mothers and motherhood as it applies to the career and career landscape is that just be you because you're inherent skills and experience as a parent. And this is true for dads too. Let's not forget dads gain a lot becoming fathers as they become fathers that is applicable to the workforce and is a strength, not a weakness. Often characterized as like, oh, well, now that you have a family, you're not going to be focused. You have other priorities. But it's like, let's also remember what motherhood and parenthood in general gifts us and how that can be applied to the workforce. And I would, I would bet that your, um, your response to that RFP, that pitch, had it been made prior to becoming a mother would have been a different pitch. That's right. Not only would the content have been different, but my willingness to jump in and release my fear would have also been different. Um, I remember the pitch was due Uh, My children had just stopped breastfeeding like maybe six weeks earlier and my husband was traveling in the Middle East. And I just thought like, this is not going to happen. This is not going to happen. And I had been through so much at that point though, the idea of having a glorious creative project as the problem. I was like, I can do this though. I I, (laughs) Please, there's no. It's just, it's just some one. It's like an all nighter, you know. Or. It's right. It's writing. It's what I love to do. It's creative. It's coming up with characters. It's thinking about how to teach kids science in a way that's going to be fun. I relished the opportunity, and so yes, the output was different, and my approach and my risk tolerance was different. Absolutely. And that project, are we able to watch this right now on PBS? Tell us. We made it to the final round of uh, ready-to-learn grants. So the U.S. Department of Education, for those who do not know, gives um, sends out requests for proposal every once in a while for very large grants um, dedicated to education and media. And um, it's a contest, basically. It is a merit-based process. Um, with many, many applicants from across the country. And now I've heard they're including broadcasters from Canada. So it just got more competitive. Um, And so I submitted a pitch to the local PBS affiliate in New York, WNET. They received a little over 50 pitches. They chose mine to move forward as their uh, proposal to the larger grant. And so we were then up against other affiliates across uh, the United States. And it was several rounds. I don't want to say how many because I don't remember exactly. Uh, But we made it to the final round. So it was uh, my show against another show and we didn't make it. So um, I remember where I was when I got that call as well. (laughs) Where were you? We were in Vermont uh, thinking that we were on a vacation, but then realized, oh, we have twins who are under three. This is a work trip. You're on a trip. They're on vacation. Your kids are on vacation. You are laboring the trip. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I learned my, one of my kids has, gets car sick. I was like, oh, this is a nice surprise. <laughs> Eight hours. <laughs> Eight hours in a car. We learned the hard way. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, that show didn't go. Um, but you know, careers are long. Life is long. 
it wasn't meant to be. I've been in the business long enough to know, first of all, every creative project has everything working against it. The stars really have to align for something to get produced. So you go into it sort of knowing that it's very uh, low probability. But also, as I look back on my career, what's for me is for me. And I've started, the older I've gotten, the more comfortable I've been in accepting that and sort of using it as a freeing like outlook that if I'm doing the best that I can, if I'm showing up, if I'm doing the work, what's for me will find me and it will work out. And if it doesn't work out, well, then there's something else around the corner that I can't imagine. I mean, Jamaica's the perfect example of that. I was shooting for Connecticut. I got Jamaica. Look at you now, all summered up year round. I mean, what could be better? I so appreciate that advice. And I do think it comes with the lived experience. And I think you and I are both Gen X or or like a Gen Y, an elder Gen Y, a millennial Gen, um, I think like a geriatric millennial. But um, we've discussed it recently on the podcast that, you know, with the pandemic forcing us to really reflect on a lot, especially if you have the, uh, the the opportunity to be an older person right now experiencing life and really seeing how at the end of the day, your best bet is to stick with being yourself, being true to yourself, because otherwise it's very hard to figure out what to do because there are a lot of shiny objects. There are a lot of people doing things differently and that gives you a sense of like you're missing out or you're not doing you're not doing things right, quote unquote right. I have felt that so often throughout my career, but I have stuck with what I like and what I know can work and what I can hang my hat on and you're right that then that sort of work continues to gravitate towards me. I'm not going to go on TikTok. That's just that's it. Period. Go. Bye. That that ship has sailed. That ship never even docked at my at my at my borders. Like it was just like that thing that I continue to look at confused, you know, but it could be an age thing, but you know, so many people, I'm sure with you too in your industry there are there are lanes that people are driving down that you're just not interested in, you know, and that should be okay. I want to give everyone that permission to do you. That's right because you're the only you and and um and that's what makes you 90% va- your value. You know, we often think like, what should I make for this? Sal- you know, what's the salary that I should command or what's the rate that I should? And I'm like, yes, there's sort of a market. There's a market consideration for that. You should see what the competition is making. And But so much of your value is in you and what you bring to the table. If someone is looking to hire you, it's not just because you have a degree like everybody else or you have this experience like everybody else, but there's something about you that is intangible, that is extremely high value. And you need to identify that as soon as possible so you can continue to leverage it and really hold your ground in that. That's right. You were asking me earlier about how I re-entered the workforce. Part of it was that RFP that coaxed me back in, but it was also getting hired um, as an audio producer to solve a problem that existed Um, and I wouldn't have been attracted to that opportunity or they wouldn't have looked to hire me if I wasn't just standing in my truth and authentically like what I have to offer and my special sauce that I bring. Um, and so it really is empowering. Um, but it's also just practical, um, to, to weed out what's not for you and what is. 
Love that. Well, we are so appreciative that you spent some time with us, especially cutting time away from your your life in Jamaica. Everybody check out mirrormirrorbooks.com. Your new book is called The Day I Beat the Germs. Thank you so much for joining us, Narissa Holder-Hall. Thank you so much, Parnish. I so appreciated being here with you. Thanks so much to Narissa for joining us. Check out mirrormirrorbooks.com to grab her first book, The Day I Beat the Germs. See you back here on Friday ahead of the 4th of July weekend. We have a very special Ask Farnoosh dedicated to all things investing, answering your targeted questions about how to prepare for retirement, what to make of meme stocks, and how to invest if you're self-employed. Our guest will be Liz Young, head of investment strategy for SoFi. Don't want to miss that. See you back here on Friday. And I hope your day is so money. So money.